Hello, everybody. My name is Mark Rayshep, and this is Another Bottle Down. It's a radio show that broadcasts in Austin, Texas weekly, and then we make this podcast uh, to distribute worldwide via the iTunes Store or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. So make sure to subscribe to never miss a great conversation about wine. Uh, And I I interview winemakers and wine personalities who have very interesting things to say. Uh, On today's show, I learned a ton from my guests, Olive and Anthony Hamilton Russell. And they have uh, the winery Hamilton Russell, named after, after their last name. Uh, and they, they, they're doing some really, really interesting things. They're located in a, a little area in the Cape South region. Uh, so if we're in Cape Town and then we go kind of east to Stellenbosch and then south of that, we're in Elgin. And then south of that is the uh, district of Walker Bay. And, and, and within that district, they, they have their little areas, um, or they call them wards in South Africa, uh, called the Hemelin Arda. And, and we talk about all of this in pretty good length. So uh, I, I think that you're going to learn a lot about the geography of South Africa. We talk about soil profiles. And, um, but, but I think that it's, if you're in the industry, that's going to be great. You'll learn a ton. If you're just a wine lover, I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation as well because Anthony and Olive are just so eloquent and uh, such huge proponents of South African wine in general. So I know that you're going to really enjoy it. Uh, so we're going to start off with having Anthony uh, give us a uh, overview of how wine is seen from, uh, from, from the international perspective and how the industry has come about. South Africa, in terms of America, uh, obviously pretty much started with the lifting of sanctions back in the early 90s. And um, there was an absolute wa- inevitable wave of interest. These wines had been held out of the market, came into the market, excited people for the novelty, and kind of let them down quite quickly with overpriced wines uh, not offering value. And we had a renewed wave of interest for some inexplicable reason around 2002. And what's happened now is that America particularly has looked at South Africa for the top end as an area of extreme value. And uh, sadly, we don't have massive volumes at that, but people are cherry-picking top-end South African wines and finding extraordinary extraordinary value and a style that sits somewhere between a conventional sort of new world style and an old world style. Wines that, that are increasingly understood and increasingly appealing. The country, um, uh, obviously 1659, I think, was our first wines. Everyone says the oldest New World wine country. Not actually true. I think uh, Argentina and Chile with the uh, Spanish occupation way, way, way back had earlier wines made for churches and the likes. Um, but we are... Um, a deep and old wine culture. Mm. And um, uh, Australia got all their vines from South Africa, for example. (laughs) And the reason the Western Cape works as an area, the southern tip of the African continent is a Mediterranean climate. We have a cold current coming up from Antarctica, which brushes the southwestern side of South Africa and enables fine winemaking at a latitude that otherwise would not afford it. If you flipped us into the northern hemisphere, we'd be the North African desert up to Rabat in Morocco. And if you had the analogous uh, line of latitude in California, it would be Santa Barbara. Mm. 
But of course, the, 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 those cool winds coming up changes everything. I mean, as far as we can't just take uh, exact latitude, right? Completely. Or you're talking about w uh, making that conversion with uh, the accounting for the cool winds and all that. Very cool. Um, so let's talk about some of the regions. I think that if, because uh, you are in a, not a very well-known region, uh, and we can touch on your history too a little later in the program, but um, but the the regions of South Africa were all in this Western Cape area, and I think most people th almost think synonymously that South Africa is, uh, is is one and the same with Stellenbosch, but that's not true, right? Stellenbosch is our Napa Valley. It's the old historic area where the first wine growing was. Uh, it was a, a, a doable wagon ride out of Cape Town with deep, fertile soils. A lot of farms were established there, and a lot of expertise was put in over a prolonged period of time. Uh, and little like Napa, the wines were a touch more robust and uh, sort of deeper. Uh, but it is it's an extraordinarily beautiful place with a lot of history. And the industry kind of grew out of that. We had a wave of immigration in the late 1600s, uh, the Huguenots out of off in the south of France, the Protestants that were persecuted with the, uh, when they revoked the Edict of Nantes, and uh, the Catholics w turned on the Protestants again. A lot of them came out to South Africa, and we had this little core of French winemaking skills just turn up in the Cape. And uh, that helped the wine industry blossom very early on. And then all the other little pockets that became available to pursue when the law preventing production outside defined areas in order to control overproduction was finally overturned in the mid-1980s. It became possible to make wine where no one had made wine before. And our area, the Himalanada Valley, Heaven and Earth Valley, is one of those new areas that became possible as that law broke down. We started prior to that semi-legally, <laughs> and uh, eventually that law was overturned. So we represented the kind of new wave of people seeking cooler, more marginal areas, higher altitudes in places that wine hadn't been grown before. Yeah, so going south from from uh, from Stellenbosch and you pass another hot spot that I, I see a lot more, this Elgin, right? Mm -hmm. um, Correct. And, and then you're even past that, so so really quite close to the coast. Yeah, how, how far? We, we are situated, I think, to make it easy to imagine geographically, we are situated almost halfway between the Cape Peninsula, Cape Town, and the most southerly tip of the continent, Cape Agullis, almost ha exactly halfway between the two, near um, what used to be an old fishing village, Hermanus, and it's become uh, more of a resort town now. Oh, beautiful. And if it's any, you know, when we fall asleep at night, um, if there isn't a prevailing wind, we can hear breakers breaking on the shore. We're under a mile from the ocean. Wow. And you walk 80 meters behind our house, you stand on some 300 meter high cliffs, and you overlook the sea, uh, the cold Atlantic, and there's nothing between us and Antarctica with a beautiful, clean, prevailing breeze off that bay throughout summer. It's really beautiful. My goodness, I, I want to be transported there immediately. <laughs> um, does, although we're, we're having pretty nice weather in Austin uh, today. Beautiful yeah, weather in Austin lovely. today. I know. So um, was there a, so you have planted there a number of things. The Hamilton Russell property is dedicated really to Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Is, is that correct? It is correct. When I, I took over, it's a family business, a very successful hobby of my father's. 
that he ran from afar in Johannesburg where money was made. He was in advertising very successfully. So Jay Walter Thompson, he owned the South African branch. And um, he started this as a passion, but like a lot of New World properties in the mid-70s, made a little bit of everything. Uh, We eventually ended up with 11 different wines and worked with eight different grape varieties, purchased grapes and grew a lot of our own. When I took over, the world had changed. Mandela had been released. The export markets had opened up. I returned to South Africa because of that. And um, we were able to focus on what we did best. And tasting the wines, what we did best was Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. So at that point in time, we focused and committed to making one Pinot Noir and one Chardonnay and only making it on the clay-rich soils on the property. Yeah, um, I'd like to delve into, you've made reference to this as far as the export markets opening up and um, kind of, uh, you know, as far as uh, Mandela and apartheid ending, delve into this i mean because because of that the and the export markets being closed off uh and and um and bans on products etc it really created the the situation where the south african wine industry is almost very young in a certain sense correct can you, can you delve into that more because i think that you, you people might hear okay they've been producing wine since the 1600s but you know what ha- you know how does that really destroy the industry um, absolutely correct. Many people say that the South African wine industry, <clears throat> in current terms, uh, started with the, the democratic elections in 1994. I mean, although Mandela was released in 1990 and there was this wonderful positive spirit in the country, a lot of people returned, a lot of people saw a future, uh, there was tremendous uns- uh, instability, violence, the economy really s- uh, struggled between 1991 and 94. So uh, we basically are quite a young industry in international terms and a very old industry in local terms. Interestingly, some of the newer wine styles are reverting to some of the traditions that had built up a long time ago. Uh, Sometimes innovation is a return to the past. Right. And there's a lot of that going on. But we hadn't faced international competition. It's interesting to note that prior to sanctions, there was a time when South Africa was 25% of the Canadian market because of their distribution system. And uh, going back in, it's about 2.5% now. So in our absence, Australia, New Zealand, and a host of other countries got in, and we were shut out. In American terms, we are an industry that really began in the mid uh, in the early 1990s. Yeah. And, and we, it's not relevant before that. We, and yeah. did you see that when <clears throat> did you see that when when you came back and and uh, bought the property from your family and it, you mentioned 1994 for that? Yes. Um, did you see this the, the, this uh, industry kind of in tatters and people trying to pick up the pieces? Uh, were your colleagues kind of trying to do the same? Was it this time of expansion? Uh, bring us back to that time because yeah. I think it's very fascinating. Well, you know, I'd, I'd done business school in America. I'd worked for an American investment bank. I'd worked for an American consulting firm. I technically was very overqualified for a business with a turnover of under $60,000. <laughs> and <clears throat> I'd like to claim some sort of insight and, and view on the future. But really, it was more of a reaction to disliking what I was doing and being terribly homesick and just wanting to come back and do something of more beauty. 
Uh, you know, I'm not saying shorter hours, but but the whole wine industry is a thing of beauty, start to finish, and that was what I wanted. And had I been sitting on a on a sofa with the springs coming out in a, in a in a wife beater, drinking bad beer and watching daytime <laughs> television, I still would have rather have done that. So there was no sense of here's an opportunity that I'm seizing. Right. It was very much a reaction to what I was doing, and as it turned out. Um, you know, the industry I did as an optimist believe that it would transform. But um, it, it took a while and it's still not a walk in the park. I think it's uh, only 12 or so percent of South African wineries make any money at all. It's a tough wow. business still to this day. And um, it's happened to work for us because it has to. <laughs> right. <laughs> were there were there uh, any other wineries in this in this uh, area, Hemel and Arda or Walker Bay, or was that, like you said that that was a relatively new area of expansion uh, in the '90s and the mid '90s? Were were you kind of alone by yourself down there? Well, my dad pioneered it in, in 1975 with the purchase of a farm. It's a little seaside town. My parents met there. My mother has a great grandmother buried there. My dad spent all his Christmases from a child onwards in a house in that seaside resort town. So as he was looking for a property to buy, there was this huge emotional connection with the area. Um, so he was the pioneer of, of that area in modern wine terms. I think some wine had been made in the past. Um, an ex-winemaker of ours had just left, which was one of the reasons I returned. There was a bit of a managerial vacuum f to suck me into but there are now 22, uh, 21 producers, 12 wine sellers. Four of them are ex-winemakers of ours, a further two relatives of ex-winemakers of ours, and one of them a staff member of ours. So it's gone from we were the only ones when I took over 26 years ago, right. and now we're one of many. And, you know, we celebrate that. And it's a proper region now, not a maverick out on a limb. And cultivating, uh, you know, and mentoring other people who then go off and start wineries of their own. Yeah, I think it was quite a slow start because, as Andy mentioned, <clears throat> 1975 for Hamilton Russell Vineyards, then the second winery in 1990, the third one in 96. Wow. And after that, only 2004, the others started mushrooming up. Wow. That's wonderful. It's 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 great to to have that story and to and to really be feel the pioneers of that area and and in an area that's so exciting that I see in the marketplace now. Tell us if folks have never had South African Pinot Noir Chardonnay, um, how flavor wise, how is it different? Um, you know, we, you mentioned somewhere in between old world and new world, and I hear that and that description mm -hmm. a, a lot. But in terms of Pinot Noir, I feel like you know South Africa is still gaining a, a, an identity. You're absolutely right, and I think if you ask that question, even our top winemakers with those varieties, they wouldn't have a, an answer. It's something we're trying to shape. Our winemaker runs a Pinot Noir interest group, and one of their missions is to try and create a, a stylistic um, identity for South African Pinot Noir because it's made in several different areas, and all of those styles differ. Yeah. I have a very clear idea about where we, we fit in, but not necessarily all the appellations. Chardonnay is a, a little easier. I think one can quite happily generalize it's between the kind of, you imagine, really big, robust, I won't say over the top in a negative way, but Californian Chardonnay, and then very tight, austere, Burgundian Chardonnay. We're, we're somewhere in between, almost exactly. Yeah. In our particular area, the three Himalanada appellations, Himalanada Valley, Upper Himalanada Valley, and Himalanada Ridge, which we created some years ago out of the Walker Bay. 
Uh, we would, have, you, would you refer to that <clears throat> as wards or is that something yes, else? absolutely. Okay. And yeah. I think it's a terrible choice of name. I'm amazed you even know it because a ward is a hugely unromantic name for a, a geographic area. It's someone, something you lock people in. It's not, um, you know, um, it's, n- it's not a definition of a wine style. So we call those appellations and it's our smallest unit of appellation is a wine ward. So we have three of those that have the name Himalanada. So we refer to our area as the Himalanada, broken up into three different wards. We have quite a clear idea now and, and an increasingly clear idea of how the style differs. So Hamilton Russell Vineyards in the Himalanada Valley would be quite structured. We would have tannin, we'd have a depth, darkness, a spice. And, and it's what I'd call challenging wines, wines that require something of you, of you. They're a little reticent. They're not open, perfumed, too fruity. You go to the upper Himalanada Valley, the soil changes from our heavy clay to decomposed granite, and you get a, a, a sort of a pure, beautiful, more feminine red fruit expression of Pinot, softer and easier. A little more recognizable. It's, it's almost like this, this shift to <clears throat> Beaujolais uh, in, in essence, where Beaujolais picks up some granite, uh, you know, from Burgundy. And then, you go to, of yeah. course, there's different grape varieties uh, in Beaujolais. Well, I agree with you. I think anything on granite is going to have this lifted sort of uh, very subtle fruit expression. Uh, I don't think Upium Lenata Valley would appreciate the Beaujolais analogy, even though I crew Beaujolais to me is the most <laughs> undervalued right, wine sure. style in the world. I think it's fabulous. But they are lighter, more feminine. People have placed them more towards the Cote de Bone, maybe Volnay, light pure Volnay. Then when you get to Himalanada Ridge, you're back on clay, but you're higher up and further from the sea. And we get an almost Oregon fruit profile. It's somewhere between the femininity of the upper Himalanada Valley and the dark, spicy masculinity of the Himalanada Valley. It's in between the two. And that's in a small, defined area that we'd call the Himalanada. So if you're a Pinot aficionado, Himalanada is the name you need for South Africa. Right. And if you really like Pinot, then you fuss about the difference in the appellations. And then Elgin, I think you mentioned Elgin. They're making some pretty good Pinot as well. But from in my experience, and this is a personal view, it is a more open, easy, fruit-driven style, a little more akin to what you might find somewhere in the New World, a little yeah. less overtly Burgundian. And then for, for also, uh, I might have you throw in um, the, the added area of the Breda River Valley for maybe for more so for Chardonnay. Um, yes. But, but we're starting to see a lot of interest there as well. How, how would, in your opinion, in your words, that differ? Well, um, Devetsov, I think, is the producer in that area in Robertson. And they have, uh, interestingly, what would be called limestone, but not marine origin limestone as we'd know it. It, it sounds absolutely bizarre, but their limestone apparently comes from uh, millennia and millennia and millennia of termites and, uh, and the bodies and the calcium that build up in the soil from that and congregate in that one area because of the river bringing it all in. And so they have a high pH soil, which is very unusual in South Africa. Our soils tend towards being high acid, unlike right. Europe. And... Um, they make a very interesting um, style of Chardonnay, and they specialize. And I would just literally single out that one property, Devetsov. I love their Chardonnays. The style is completely different to ours, right. but relevant and beautiful. Very cool. Um, well, I, I love hearing this breakdown because I think it is important, and, and especially in the industry, um, I, I think that a lot of sommeliers around the U.S. don't even know Hemelinarda, and then you know it's always that quest to get to know a little bit deeper, get to know that place of origin a little bit closer. 
let's let's kind of uh, go past Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Or, or do you want to say some words about the Chardonnay? Um, well, we kind of mentioned Pinot Noir um, in terms of Oregon. You know, just to put in a small punt, we uh, on Thursday and Friday uh, we're going to be pouring it at the Critics' Choice Tasting in New York. It came number eleven in the top one hundred wines of the year worldwide. And, and the reason that's good for us is not just for our brand, but the fact that the senior editors of the Wine Spectator who argue heavily about number one to 100 sure. feel fit to award a South African wine a ranking that high. And um, it's just the mind change about the, the relevance of South African wine in the U.S. market. We're certainly not alone in making great wine. Um, but we we devote a third of everything we make to this market, and we we believe in it very strongly. We love coming here, and that's one of the reasons we get on those kind of lists. There are lots of great South African wines that aren't even put up for review. Yeah, absolutely, and um, and it's that dedication to telling the story because uh, South Africa is a little bit hard to, to to understand and digest. So I thank you for coming to the U.S. and, and doing that work. It's tough tough work, right? <laughs> We love it. Yeah. It's not tough. Right. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, so wonderful. Pinot Noir and Chardonnay for Hamilton Russell. And uh, then you have some other properties that you maybe created later on in order to tell the story of different varieties. Is that correct? It is correct. And a lot of people have wondered why we didn't just add those under the Hamilton Russell line. Because when I did take over, we had a lot of different wines. Um, I'm a great believer in uh, focus. I'm a great believer that a brand, you only ever get known for one or two things. Uh, One thing usually, and if you're very lucky, two things, and it's never the same color. So (laughs) one white, one red. And and so I I had a great belief in the potential for Pinotage, South African grape. I almost felt obliged as a South African producer to work with it, and we felt we needed another vehicle for it. And that, yeah. Can can we delve into that? Because I've had some other South African winemakers in the studio um, saying kind of the opposite thing of what you're saying. Bring us back to what is Pinotage, first of all. Yes. Well, I, I will just say about those South African winemakers, it's become cool to like. It used to be a sign of knowing about wine to say you don't like Pinotage. It's flipped on its head. It, it's a sign of being actually, frankly, a little... Uh, out of sync with what's going on and and perhaps a little narrow-minded. Pinotage intrinsically is extraordinary. And um, I think, you know, just very in a nutshell, it's it's something that South Africa created in the 20s by crossing Pinot Noir with Sinzo. Sinzo was our workhorse grape variety, much as Syrah was in Australia, California had Cab, etc., Malbec for Argentina. And... um, uh, Sinzo was reliable and dependable. Pinot Noir was potentially great, but completely unreliable and flighty. And by putting the two together, the hope was to reliably get large quantities of a great wine. Right, right, right. <laughs> and obviously, when you shuffle the genetic deck, <laughs> the results are fundamentally different. So Pinotage created in the 20s. We shouldn't think of it in terms of its parents. I always point out Cabernet Sauvignon was a creation from the mid-1600s, a spontaneous cross between Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet Franc. And we don't pick up a California cab and say, there's the Sauvignon Blanc and there's the Cabernet Franc. It's its own thing. Pinotage is its own thing. It's South African. And I believe it has a great future. Yeah. What what, what are these these flavors that you get? And then I'd like to discuss, you know, why it's good in in your area and, and in your vineyards as opposed to, you know, like you say, it was a South African creation and it and it's planted pretty, pretty much pretty readily throughout the country. Right. Or at least the Western Cape. Correct. 
And we get back to your point about granite, because I think there is a relevant and very interesting expression of lighter structured granitic decomposed granite soils. But uh, like Pinot Noir, we believe it has an affinity with clay. Uh, if you take Pinot Noir off clay, you move from something like Côte de Nuit uh, Burgundy to Sancerre Rouge, which is on light structured sandstone, which is lovely for lunch, but no one's really laying it down and, and writing home about it much. Apologies to any producers because they really do try hard with it. Um, but Pinot Noir needs heavy structured soil, in my opinion, to go beyond the rather simple aspect of the variety, that simple, open, easy fruit. Pinotage to us is the same. It needs heavy soil. It's also an early ripener like Pinot Noir. And if you put an early ripener in a warm area, it gallops towards overripeness too quickly. And our experience of a lot of indifferent South African Pinotage has been overripe, soft, round, easy, um, you know, lots of American oak, just, you know, that old misguided aesthetic of let's do what made Australia great in the early days with our massive Syrahs. Right, and it's right. not the way that the variety should be handled. The new young winemakers that have jettisoned the past, that have suddenly reattached to the variety, not worrying about all the stigma attached to it, are making wines that are refined, tight, uh, tannic, uh, tannic in a good way. And I think there's a complete renaissance happening at the moment with the, with the grape variety. Absolutely. I, I think that in a similar way to where Chile is working with Carmen Air, and, and, and the idea is that they've been just doing it all wrong all, all these years, uh, not just uh, about harvesting it earlier, because that was the first thought. Well, you know, is it just harvested? Um, are we just harvesting it too earlier? But then it's where, what is the site? What is the soil uh, profile that, that it works on? And so Correct. what what about the smoky <clears throat> quality? Because, I, you know, I think well, that... Um, you know, the, I found smoky in Melo, in Syrah, in Cabernet, in every South African red. It's not a grape varietal character. It's a function of wood handling. It's a function of wine at different levels of phenolic ripeness being handled in different ways in the cellar. It's definitely, if you have completely unwooded pinotage, you're not going to get any smokiness. And then, of course, some people say the rubber or the Britannomyces, the Lastoplast, that's Britannomyces. And that you get in any grape variety that's handled in a certain way or if the hygiene issues in the cellar. So it's not a varietal character, but without the French, a French benchmark to excuse the grape and accuse the winemaker, people will <laughs> have one bad glass of Pinotage and say, I hate the grape. Right. You'd never say that about Syrah or Pin Pinot Noir because you've got great French examples to prove you're wrong. Uh, so it's not a smoke. The smoky character has nothing to do with the grape variety. Yeah, great. It's great. just not there in the grape. Yeah. Cool. Uh, coming firsthand, for sure. <laughs> firsthand <laughs> evidence. So the Pinotage that you make mm -hmm. is under uh, what name, what label, and, and where is it coming from in the vineyard? The, Olive, yeah. So the Pinotage, as Anthony started the Southern Right property, uh, or the Southern Right brand, I should say, in 1994, uh, with the mission statement of redefining Pinotage and explain to do what he just explained to us now. And then we were finally fortunate enough to buy land on the western border of Hamilton Russell Vineyards in 2006 and finally build a cellar for those wines, a home for the Southern Right wines in time for the 2009 harvest. And then Ashbourne is another uh, vehicle of working with Pinotage and specializing in Pinotage. 
Um, and there we bought land in 1998 on the eastern border of Hamilton Russell Vineyards. So three separate properties contiguous um, along in, in the Imelnada Valley just behind Hermanus. Wow. And uh, so when you decided to plant this vineyard, was there a consideration for, you know, any other particulars as far as, um, I mean, are there a large variety of different clones or are there uh, for Pinotage or there, um, and then we should get into talking about Sauvignon Blanc eventually uh, from that property as well. Well, embarrassingly, there are not many clones for Pinotage. When I planted, there was basically two. And really, those clones were more about the viral status of the material than the actual character of, of the grapes. Uh, there are now a few more clones, but this is 25 years later. Sure. Uh, we really should have gone to every old vineyard and looked for anomalistic vines, and the industry should have a 10, 12 or more clones. Obviously, some would get rejected, but it's really work that needs to be done. And I think it's going to be done in the future. And um, so, so Pinotage as overall is going to get better and better as that, that work and that technology and, and that understanding of the variety improves. Correct. You know, it's not so just about the quality. I believe in that deeply. I think the grape has intrinsics. I think it's about the new generation winemakers getting behind it and, and putting their names to it and making it their signature uh, wine. Once that happens, it's just going to boom. And I really genuinely believe one day it will be a red signature for the country. Yeah. Wonderful. And how, you know, so you have some history with it. Um, how does it age? How do, I mean, do, do we have examples of, of aged Pinotage? I mean, you, you're clearly excited about it. And I know that the wines that you like and, and make um, will get better with time. Yeah. Well, well you, you, you're an 80s, uh, you look like you're an 80s vintage, right? <laughs> yeah, early, <laughs> early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah. I've tasted Pinotage from the mid-60s, which has been extraordinary, and from the late 60s. And this was in the days when people didn't overwood, they picked a bit earlier. And the naturally high tannins in the grape, if the acidity is up there and the pH is down, and some of them didn't even do mallow, they were done in big foudre, right. and it wasn't this modern overripeness. Those wines age for an extraordinary amount of time. Yeah. And I think it's one of the most age-worthy grape varieties that we have planted in the country. Very cool. And I think it is the beauty of those wines um, that, that, that inspired Anthony to try and redefine what was happening in the modern day um, in, in South Africa with Pinotage. Yeah, a resurrection. And and so, you know, you could say that you, you're really leading the, the charge on that as well. Um, well, you, you know, I'm leading a charge in a certain slightly tighter, um, brighter, more acidic, leaner European style. But I would say that properties like Kanonkop in Stellenbosch that have a, a wonderful set of really old vineyards are doing absolutely extraordinary things with it. And, you, you know, you could name five, six, seven other winemakers that are really starting to do some really beautiful things with Pinotage. Right. Uh, so, you know, and, and a growing number. Yeah. Well, we'll keep looking forward to, to trying those for sure. Um, Sauvignon Blanc is something that is a really, really exciting in uh, all of the south, south part of the Western Cape, and in particular your area. Talk to that grape variety. I don't think our particular area, the Himalanada, could claim ownership of it, although out of our three, uh, it sounds paltry in American terms, but 370 hectares in our three appellations of grapes overall, 
23% of that is Sauvignon Blanc, so it's not a lot. Um, I would say that places like Elgin, um, Darling, um, Constantia, uh, almost have as much claim to ownership of the grape variety, although the styles differ. And the, the um, confusing thing about Sauvignon Blanc is it can alter dramatically depending on how the winemaker handles it. You know, if you pick it phenolically fully ripe or less ripe, and if it's more methoxypyrazine or more thiol, et cetera, et cetera, if it's wooded or unwooded. So we don't have a clear map of how the styles differ in South Africa, but I would say of all the varieties, it's the easiest to generalize about overall internationally and say that South African Sauvignon Blanc lies between the excess of New Zealand with that dramatic aromatic profile, that austerity and tightness of really good Sancerre, it's somewhere in between, with a, perhaps a slight leaning towards the Loire. Yeah, <laughs> I like that's a good place to be. <laughs> Very good place to be, and there's not a lot of it. And what we do love is America, as, as it moves away from riper, fuller, more dramatic styles, is finding Sauvignon Blanc as a grape variety very interesting. Yeah. Does that like particular soils or or um, are we seeing that on clay as well? Or, or? Uh, it's, it's a good question. And one of the reasons we decided to work with Sauvignon Blanc is that it's not naturally good on clay. So the other soil we have is Table Mountain Sandstone, light structured free draining. And it gives us the opportunity to devote our clay to Pinot, Chardonnay and Pinotage on the three properties and then Sauvignon Blanc on the lighter structured sandstone soils where the aromatic profile is better and that tense nervous edginess is, is enhanced. Yeah. Um, if you're just tuning in, I'm talking with Anthony Hamilton Russell and Olive Hamilton Russell, um, owners of Hamilton Russell in the Hemelin Arda, a, a very exciting area. Um, so, and, and this has been great insight into your area and to the, you. The, 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 the far reaches of, um, of, of South, uh, South Africa. Um, when, so you also do some blending with Pinotage. Um, we often see it as, as it, it, you know, by itself on the shelves as its single varietal wine, but uh, because of that high tannin, it might uh, make it uh, very, very approachable to, um, uh, to blend and to beef up the tannin in other grape varieties. Is that the concept there? Yes, and I, I think a lot of people uh, who, I mean, Pinotage doesn't exactly have the same brand goodwill as a Syrah or a Cabernet internationally. And a lot of people have Pinotage and then will try and blend it to get it sold and the likes. The more I move forward, the more I realize that it, it can stand on its own and doesn't really need those blending partners. We went through a stage on our Ashbourne property of blending it with various Bordeaux varieties and a touch of Syrah, all estate grown but to just a small component, always overwhelmingly Pinotage. And I don't believe we added to the wine. So we've actually reviewed that and gone back to 100% uh, Pinotage. But we do have another interesting research and development project with unwooded Pinotage from the Swatland, decomposed granite. There's that bright, more lifted aromatic fruit structure and some more softness. Uh, it's a warm area, low acid, high pH, more venosity early. And we blend it with a little bit of Sinzo, which brightens and freshens it and makes it a little less weighty. Yeah. And it's produced an extraordinary wine with a lot of analogies with Cru Beaujolais. Yeah. Interesting. Wonderful. Although, you know, interesting that, that Senso um, is maybe a lesser known grape variety, but but also interesting in its own right. And one of the parents, which... Correct. Is, <laughs> I, I didn't want it to seem gimmicky. It, genuinely, the Senso holds its acid better. It is lighter and fresher. It doesn't have a lot of deep color. 
but the interesting thing is Sinzo is probably the most expensive grape to get a hold of in South Africa. You can buy Cabernet for less money. Uh, everyone's after it. Wow. And, and it was our most planted red and has become one of our least planted reds. And everyone's thinking, whoops, you know. So this is where innovation is often a return to the past. A lot of the new wine styles coming from, I hate the word hipster, but anyway, hipster winemakers are a return to how wines were made back in the 70s and, and 50s and the likes. My goodness, mm. the, you know, the <laughs> amount of old vine Zinfandel that was pulled up in Napa Valley. Uh, I know, what that, a tragedy. And, and, then, <laughs> and then you have other people that then look at a vineyard and say, oh, you should really plant Zinfandel there. <laughs> oh, shucks. Same thing happened to us in South Africa. Where is, so is, is the industry growing? I know that it's growing in terms of uh, imports to the U.S. and a number of labels. Uh, is is it is it growing in terms of vineyard land as well, uh, uh, or or is it kind of in like you said, not mm -hmm. many people are making money at this in in, in in the it's, industry. It's having very hard times, and um, I feel a little a little. We've done very well, and um, I sometimes feel a little bad about that, and almost a little guilty. But I think what's happening is the free market, the forces in the old days was very government regulated. You were told what you could plant, where the yields, all that kind of stuff. And, and that never is the best thing for an industry. We're facing the full forces of the free market. So the big producers, the mass producers, the high volumes of low end wines. There's no interest in that internationally, really. We can't do better than Chile, Argentina, you know, Australia on that score. We do very well, but we can't do better. The excitement in South Africa is at the top end. So what's happening is those big volume producers, we're losing vineyard acreage. And um, we're moving closer to the coast. There are lots of smaller uh, production winemakers, more focused variety. So I would like to say we're making less and better, which to me is exactly the direction the industry needs to move in. Right. I, I would agree for sure. Uh, it's wonderful. Can we, you know, I want to mention this and uh, get your impressions uh, on the grape of Chenin Blanc or uh, Steen. You do not, from your uh, website, I, I couldn't find a Chenin Blanc. Yeah. Um, there, there, there's a good reason. I believe in it. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Oliver and I buy a lot of Chenin Blanc, particularly the lean, tight, austere, hard mineral ones that are starting to come out of old vines even in warmer areas, um, and we wanted to make that the, the partner to the Pinotage in Southern Right because of the South Africanness of it. It was logical. Right. But, <laughs> you know, what you wish for from a marketing point of view and what the uh, terroir realities are are two different things. And we always found the Sauvignon Blanc was a wine with more merit from our area. Shannon doesn't do particularly well in the Himalanada. A couple of people are trying it, and we might get somewhere with it. But I, I don't believe it's a, a logical variety for us. It is a late ripening variety. And generally speaking, in our area, early ripening varieties are, are performing better. But I adore good South African Chenin Blanc. I think it's a great thing from the country. Right. Me too. And 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 I like how they're moving away from the the the, steen, the traditional word uh, steen. Do you, do you see that uh, more so happening? Yes, very much so. I mean, people label things now internationally. In the old days, when you sold locally, it didn't really matter. Um, now it's the whole world, and nobody understands steen. You will see some wines popping up, and because of the tradition of it and the old fashionedness of it, they're going to bring steen back. There will be some hipster wines with the word steen 
Yeah. It's crazy <laughs> no just doubt. how cyclical, you know, the industry is. It's, yes. it's just wild. Well, where we've got a few minutes left. Yeah. Where 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 do you think um are there any regions that that you're thinking about uh buying buying land in or 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 setting up another winery or um what 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 are you, you know, what are your thoughts in the future of the uh, the, the Hamilton Russell? Yeah. Well, quite honestly, uh, it's a kind of a negative ambition. It's it's no longer, um, Olive might feel differently, but <laughs> I just want to keep doing what we're doing and have enough money to do that. And I feel privileged to be able to do it. Uh, you know, my kids are through schooling now. Um, we, we, we're doing a lot more in, in terms of the community and the region and laying the groundwork for the Appalachians. If I had the money, I'd definitely like to buy land in the Swatland, for sure. Um, but established old vineyard, which I can't recreate in my lifetime. Uh, but quite honestly, we are fully geographically focused. The farms are contiguous. And my sole thing is to make sure that the next generation takes over and takes over well yeah. and to set it up for the future. How do you feel, Olive? Where would you? Where do you think we should buy land? <laughs> <laughs> well, we love what we're doing, and I think what and what Oregon. <laughs> well, I was getting there. And if if we had to look somewhere internationally, Auntie and I adore the Oregon Pinots. Yeah. We were fortunate enough um, to be invited to show our Hamilton Russell Vineyards 2013 Pinot Noir at the IPNC two years ago, and spending the four or five days there. Uh, we just we just got to know Oregon Pinot so much better, and we were just really impressed with, with the quality and coming I, I will, out of the region. I'll interject that that's the um, the Pinot Camp uh, festival that you were talking about, yeah. where 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 it, people and someone is from everybody comes together to talk about Pinot Noir. So you were present there in this international forum. Yes, yeah. and Anthony was invited to speak on some of the on on a panel where. Uh, the five top uh, Pinot Noir or five most planted Pinot Noir clones in in Oregon um, where yeah the merits were discussed and they were tasted and identified as to which which clones are best suited on which slopes and which soil types and and so forth Um, and the research and work that's going into uh, Pinot Noir focus in Oregon was just really inspiring Um, so I think if we had to look somewhere internationally it would be Oregon. But for us, we want to yeah, touch wood. We want to stay where we are um, for for the rest of our lives. And part of the reason we also became or became or started to, to, to engage organic farming practices. And I think in South Africa now with the three properties, um, we are farming the largest tract of land organically in South Africa. Um, we are not certified and we're not planning to certify and we don't mention it on the labels. We're not using it as a selling point. For us, it really is just um, becoming more... Um, Getting to know our vines better, but I think also the overriding factor is to to keep the soil healthy and alive because our dream and ambition is would be for someone hopefully from our family to still be making beautiful wines from that precious piece of land in 100 or 150 years from now and we want to keep that soil as healthy and alive as possible right uh, part of that stewardship of, of the land and and it, because vineyards last so long it, it, it really is important um, do I, I'd like you to talk about what you're doing about the um, 
about the community. I mean, I see mm. some uh, wineries doing things with wildlife preservation or um, with, with, with uh, being, being um, sort of uh, parents to, to various communities. What, what are your thoughts as to mm. best uh, be positive? <clears throat> Well, it's a multiple thing. It's where we live and have done for you know 26 years. And um, first, on a nature point of view, we're Worldwide Fund for Nature Conservation Champions. So in the industry initiative in South Africa as an industry is enormously conservation aware. I think that's one of the things that makes me very proud to be a South African producer. We're amongst the sort of top echelon of people in the industry with our conservation initiatives. And we audit it for that annually. So we can't just say we do it and then not do it. We have someone check on us. <laughs> we, we are rated every year and audited for our sustainable farming practices. And we scored at our last thing, 95, got a cum laude, you know, and everything. So we really take that kind of thing really seriously. And then what we started 21 years ago was a preschool on the property because if we look at our agricultural workers who basically post pre-Mandela as release, you know, were fairly impoverished and, and back, backward, not in a horrible way, but backward educationally as it likes. Uh, we believe the most leveraged thing to do is to invest in the children from diapers to school going age. The government takes over at the age of six, but prior to that, I won't say neglected, but often just looked after during the day by an aunt or a grandmother while both parents are working, no development. Suddenly the government pays at the age of six and there's a tendency to drop out of school. So we have a school for 47 kids at the moment, only three from our staff, waiting lists of 50. And um, that's where we put a huge amount of our charitable donations. And we've assisted in founding another school in our area as well. So that's where we put a lot of work into the community. And the rest is conservation initiatives. Uh, indigenous vegetation mainly in the past, some stuff with the whales. You'll find we're not alone. You go throughout the South African wine industry, you'll get people doing that. Yeah. So, I mean, on your property, to give us just a picture of that, that diversity mm. of vegetation, I mean, is, is, it, is it just, you know, is, give us a, you know, an, an idea of what that is. Mm. Well, it's one of my passions and hobbies. So if you've got three days, let's get no. going. But no, no, I'll give it to you in a sentence. Uh, we, we have 136 species of birds that I've counted. Now, that's not a lot for South Africa. It's a lot for our particular area. And that's been built up over uh, you know 26 years. I've recorded those. We are busy planting what we call biodiversity islands amongst the vineyards to break up the uh, sort of monotony of monoculture. Uh, we already have permanent cover in the vines to, to break that up. But I'll plant bird-friendly uh, bushes, indigenous bushes, so we attract various sunbirds and things. We have five species of deer or buck, however you look at them, of different sizes. They're mainly nocturnal and small. It's not like game viewing in a South African sense. We have leopard passing through. We have caracal. We've got porcupines. We've got skunks. We've got mongies. We've got a host of different amphibians, at least seven different species of snakes that we see fairly regularly and, and more that, that would be occasional, three species of tortoise. It really is a, you know, it's a nature reserve, and we cherish that. The, we have more species of plants in our Appalachian than there are in the United Kingdom. And more species of plants in the Cape Floral Kingdom than in the entire Northern Hemisphere. So this is something that the winelands are very much part of conserving within the South African um, ecosystem. Yeah. 
Wow. Do you um, do you receive uh, uh, tourists and, and wine lovers from around the world on, on the property? Um, do you have a, any sort of bed and breakfast or anything like that? Yeah. We, we, we don't have um, cottages on the property, but we have a tasting room that is open um, during the day where get one could just show up and no appointments needed. Um, and then if one is particularly one interested um, and makes an appointment to, to con- or, yeah, contact Antonio and make an appointment with us and, and if, when, yeah, if we're on the property, we love to host people personally, open a couple of old vintages, um, toast those in the underground Pinot Noir barrel cellar um, and then invite invite you to have some lunch with us at our home on the property. Um, we we love ent- we love entertaining and well receiving and entertaining um, fans of wine and, and lovers of wine and it's um, we are in an agricultural area near the southern tip of the African continent so we absolutely love uh, receiving receiving guests. Yeah, wonderful. Well, Olive Hamilton Russell and Anthony Hamilton Russell, thank you so much for being on. These guys are the the, the fine folks behind Ashbourne, Southern Wright, and Hamilton Russell Vineyards. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you, you so very much. much. It's been a privilege for yeah. us. Thank you.